The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John 13, and we'll begin at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Sydney. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the director of discipleship here at Christ Prez, uh, and I recently read some news that the famous West Coast hamburger chain, In-N-Out Burger, has decided to open an eastern hub right down the road from here in Franklin, Tennessee. And what that means, of course, is that there will be In-N-Out Burger restaurants popping up all and down I-65 over the next several years. And I already can see you've heard the news, many of you, and many of you are excited about it. Um, Are some of you not excited about it? Yeah. See, there's always, this is such a divisive issue that sometimes people will be like, yes, and others like, meh, you know. Uh, and still others have no idea what I'm talking about. Again, it's a divisive issue. And I think part of the problem is that for many of you, when you finally got the chance to try In-N-Out Burger, it wasn't what you expected. And it forever changed the way you think about it. There are people out there who love it so much and for so long they've talked about it. And it was something that you can't get here. So it almost became like a fairy tale. It's the perfect burger, and you can't get it. And for some of you, by the time you actually had the opportunity to try it, you were like, well, it's a hamburger. It wasn't what I expected. I'll bet the passage we just read is familiar to many of you. It might conjure up certain images or impressions in your mind when it's read. In fact, I'd like to stop for a moment and ask you all to imagine the setting of the Last Supper. What might the setting of the Last Supper look like in your mind? What comes to mind? Do you have an idea? I wonder for how many of you, if this is what you pictured. Is that what you pictured? It's perfect. It's it's Leonardo da Vinci's painting, which is uh, titled, as you may have guessed, The Last Supper. And whether or not you're familiar with this painting, there's a high probability that you've seen it before a picture of it or a picture of a painting uh, at some point and and possibly even registered it in your mind as, I'm sure this is what the actual Last Supper looked like. Well, it didn't. 
If you had a way of going back in time and looking into the window of the upper room and seeing the scene, what you would have seen wouldn't have looked like this. And I hope that's not a letdown for you. I hope you're not disappointed by that. The picture that was painted for you doesn't tell the whole story, and it's not supposed to. So so let's look at the text and see what we can learn about what happened on this night, and maybe we'll discover a picture that's even more beautiful than anything we could have ever imagined. Based on what we read in the gospel, more than likely, they all weren't sitting on the same side of the table like they did in the TV sitcoms of the 80s and 90s, right? Most likely, yes, the table would have been rectangular, and and they would have been situated all around the table. But here's something that might surprise you. In all likelihood, they weren't seated in chairs. You see, this would have been a typical first century Passover meal. It's not that chairs weren't invented yet. They were. And they were used for most meals. But on rare occasion, like a Passover meal, chairs weren't used. Maybe you've seen an old movie where the, the film was trying to give us a depiction of a Roman feast. You know, the ones where, where the emperor and his guests would, would literally be re- reclining alongside low tables, leaning to their left, keeping all the, the food right in front of them and eating grapes and legs of lamb and, and drinking wine. Well, eventually this practice made it into Jewish culture as Rome was a ruling power at the time. But when it was introduced initially to the Jews, they rejected it because it seemed awful decadent. However, over time, the practice of reclining at the table began to find acceptance in Jewish culture and was used to celebrate special occasions. Okay, we'll do this whole reclining thing, uh, but we'll reserve it for special occasions, occasions to celebrate, one of which being the observation of the Passover meal. In the Old Testament, when the Passover meal was initiated, the meal was eaten in haste, symbolic of of those who left Egypt in haste. But later, after the Lord delivered them from, from Egypt, they ate the meal slowly, more deliberate and, and, uh, and remembered and rejoiced in their deliverance. They savored it. They relished in it. So yes, let's, let's recline. Let's do it. So, so picture it with me. The disciples and Jesus around the table, seated not in chairs, but low to the ground, leaning on their left side with their, with their feet actually behind them, Now, at the end of the service, when we bring you up here for the Lord's Supper, we're not going to ask you to situate yourselves in that such a way, right? But it's an important detail in the account. Why? Because, yes, it's an occasion to celebrate, but it was also an intimate occasion. So intimate that the text tells us that one of the disciples is able to lean so far to the left that he's able to rest on Jesus, leaning back all the way onto his chest. Yes, it's an occasion to celebrate, but we're also told Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I don't know what you think about when you think of Jesus, the person Jesus, as confessing Christians, we believe him to be the Son of God, or as the Nicene Creed says, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God. We believe, as we're told in Colossians 1.19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so with that understanding, we might, Jesus, we might imagine Jesus walking around fully God, always with this, this steely look in his eyes, yet tender, humble, but, but unflappable. I know the beginning from the end. I know how it all works out, so why would I ever need to be troubled? Yet we also believe, as confessing Christians, that he was made man. He's God incarnate. So, so yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. 
which means he lived the full human experience, yet without sin. Having a troubled spirit, not a sin. So why was he troubled? Because betrayal hurts. Yes, he knew how and why the scriptures were to be fulfilled, yet he knew his betrayer was seated at the table. And yes, he knows the beginning from the end. And yet he was troubled. J.C. Ryle says that it was a foreseen sorrow from the beginning we need not doubt, but sorrow is not less acute because long foreseen. In other words, just because Jesus from all eternity knew of the sorrow of what awaited him, it didn't make it less painful. In fact, we might even wonder if it made it worse. I don't know if you've ever had oral surgery or surgery of any kind, right? Having a lot of lead time to mentally prepare for what's about to happen to you, well, sometimes that's not helpful. Knowing what awaited me, I marked the day on my calendar and prayed that maybe Jesus would return before that day. And this is the assurance you have in Christ, aptly titled our sermon series based on a larger campaign. Yes, he gets us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, hold that thought, yes, he felt hunger just like you. Yes, he felt rejection just like you. Yes, he felt sorrow just like you. And yes, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to understand that he gets us? Sometimes when when someone sympathizes with us and tells us, yes, I know your pain. I too have been through a similar pain. Perhaps, Perhaps that provides some measure of comfort. But the reality is it doesn't make the pain go away. So why is it important to know that he gets us? It's important because you need to understand that he represents you. Fully man. He stands in your place, not like a man, but as a man and faces all the same things you face. And yes, he can certainly sympathize with you, but there's a reason he had to get you. Because if he was going to represent you and me, that is, stand in your place and take the judgment that we deserved, then he had to be a human being just like you and me. He had to be representative of you and me in the same manner if he was going to represent you and me and live perfectly righteous, a perfectly righteous life that we weren't able to do, he had to do it as a human being a human being in every respect. So yes, he gets you, and in so doing, he can make the pain go away. In fact, he promises to do that for every pain, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're told that in Revelation 21. So as a believer in Jesus, you stand before God, not draped in your weakness, your sin, your sorrow, but draped in his righteousness, You're judged based on his righteousness, not yours. And you stand before God completely accepted because, yes, he gets you, he got you, and he will get you. That's his promise to you. Not only a Savior who sympathizes, but one who experiences what you do so as to stand in your place and give you life. Let's go back to the dinner table and and you'll see what I mean. As the dinner begins to unfold, Jesus in his troubled spirit uh, spirit makes makes an announcement. One of you will betray me. And when he says this, I want you to observe the response of the disciples. Notice what they do. They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. In other words, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't start surreptitiously surreptitiously (laughs) pointing to Judas 
surreptitiously. They were uncertain of whom he spoke. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that they, the disciples were very sorrowful to hear this and began to say to him one to another, Is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Do you see what this reveals? Each one of them pictured themselves in the seat of the betrayer. Which, as an aside, is the sentiment of the, of the Da Vinci, um, what he was trying to capture in the Last Supper. Universal doubt. Each one of them had their doubts. Each one of them, to this point, had witnessed Jesus doing the miraculous, seeing signs of heaven that validated the fact that he wasn't just a special teacher, he wasn't just a pretty good prophet, but he was the Son of God. By this point in Jesus' ministry, we had heard Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one. You're the long-awaited Messiah. And to that, Jesus said, you're right. You're right, Peter. The God of heaven revealed that to you. Jesus didn't deny it. He affirmed it. What further assurance do they need? Yet as they sit around the table on this night, they each question their faith in the Messiah. Am I the one? Am I the betrayer? Because Jesus, I could see myself doing something like that. You know what? Me too. Me too. How many of us have doubts? How many of us, like the disciples, after everything we know of Jesus, after all the Bible reading and praying, going to church, and some of us for years and years and years have been doing this, and yet after all that, we still have our doubts? Do you have moments like that? Is all this really leading to what I hope it leads to? That's exactly what the disciples were asking. Is all of this really true? Because if they really believed it to be true, would they be asking themselves, am I the one that might be about to betray Jesus? I know many of you know that my father passed away in June of 2021, so it's only been about a year and a half or so, and I still think about him a lot. I still think about his passing. From the time that my father was diagnosed with a rare form of, of liver cancer to his death, it was only about a six-week period. And, and I remember when we received the diagnosis, the doctor, in no uncertain terms, he made it very clear, this is very serious. It's time to get your house in order. That's what he told my dad. Nevertheless, we, we remained optimistic. He can fight it. We can push that date back as far as, as, as we can. Let's make a plan. We'll follow it. We'll fight. And as he fought, it seemed like with every step forward, he took two steps back. And things started to unwind more rapidly than we could keep up with. And as he fought, he expressed for the first time that I'd ever heard, doubts. Because it was about a week before he passed, he was back in the hospital again and, and things, things got real. He was about to be discharged, but the doctor told him, this time I'm discharging you, but you're going to go home to hospice care. And my dad asked him in disbelief, you mean I'm not going to get better? The question need not be answered. We already knew the answer. And I remember my dad being so downcast because, of course, he would be downcast. But again, what took me by surprise was in the hospital bed lies a man whom I've known to be a Christian my whole life, a man whom I had witnessed to be the hands and feet of Christ for so many, more than I could ever possibly tally, 
a man whom I'd seen grown in his sanctification over the course of my whole life, suddenly expressing doubts. Questions maybe he never felt comfortable saying out loud before, but now he's saying, have I done enough? Will he really accept me? And yes, six weeks was fast, too fast. But I'm grateful for the fact that it was enough time to be able to have some meaningful conversations with him. And what I told him was, was not something that I thought of, but something a close friend once said to me. I repeated back to my father. What matters is less our hold on God and more his hold on us. His strength, not yours. Around the table, they all doubted one by one. Is it I? Am I, am I capable of betraying the Savior? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Because look at how the scene played out. In just a few days, this is, this, is, this is what happened. Where did all the disciples go? Yes, Judas carried out his plan to betray the Savior, but the other disciples, they ran too. They scattered. None of them stood by his side when things got tough. Why is that? Why did they do that? But even more, why do we do that? Why do we have doubts? And dare I ask it, is, this, is the church a safe place to express those doubts? Is the church a safe place to say, like my father said to me, will he really accept me? Sometimes I don't know. Why do we doubt? Maybe it's because we have a different impression in our minds for how all this should work. And then when it doesn't, I am uh, what you would consider to be a do-it-yourselfer. Uh, it's something I got from my father, actually. My, my first impulse, rather than calling a contractor or a mechanic, is to say, I wonder if this is something I can do myself, which sometimes is great, and other times is not great. Uh, this last summer, we had a, a water heater that failed on us. The builder of the home that, that we, we live in, uh, they decided originally to put the water heater in the attic, which isn't the best place for a water heater when that water heater should fail unless you want to experience what it's like to have rain inside the house. So I started to get some quotes, you know, what it would take to replace this, not with another water heater in the attic, but a, a tankless water heater. Those are all the rage now. Tankless water heater that would go outside or in the garage. And after getting a few quotes, which were outrageous, by the way, much to my wife's discomfort, I proclaimed, I bet I could do this. I'm glad you think it's funny. <laughs> Let me make a long story short. I, I got it done. I got it installed. Of course, it took way longer than anticipated and involved several unscheduled trips to the Home, uh, home Depot, but I got it done. However, when I went to fire it up, it didn't work. I checked my work. I rechecked my work, and I checked it again. I got on the phone with a manufacturer, and it wasn't working. So I had to make the call of shame. I had to call the plumber and say here's what I did. Can you come look at it? It's embarrassing, slightly humiliating, yes. I just knew the plumber was going to show up and passive-aggressively suggest, maybe you should have just let me to do this from the beginning, right? What made that phone call so uncomfortable? Because it required me to reveal all my insecurities. Because I was having to put my abilities on the table and say, it's not enough. My father in his dying days was saying the same thing. It's not enough. What I've got is not enough. 
And to be the one who's been a Christian for many years to express something like that, maybe, maybe there's an element of shame. Are, are we supposed to have doubts? Is it okay to have doubts? Can I tell you what doubt is? Doubt is nothing more than broken people coming to terms with the fact that they don't have enough. That they can't reconcile that they ha- what they have or what they've been given. And, and it's not that we doubt the e- efficacy of his work. It's that we keep trying to shoehorn our own efforts into the transaction. Doubt is then looking at yourself and realizing, I don't think this is going to cut it. We doubt because we're still trying to make up the difference between what we're capable of and what we're not capable of. Is it I, Lord? All they're saying in the moment is deep down inside, I know I'm capable of being the betrayer. I know I have it in me to be the betrayer because in and of myself, I know I don't have enough to bridge the gap between sinfulness and righteousness. We doubt because somehow, someway, even subconsciously, we're trying to put that ability back on ourselves. And we realize it's not enough. Our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned, what did they do? They took it upon themselves to try and cover up their own sin with fig leaves. And then after they tried to cover themselves, they went and they hid. They still hid after they covered themselves because it wasn't enough. So betrayal, yeah, I'm capable of that. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? As Jesus and the disciples continued with their meal, it was Peter, good old Peter. He motioned to John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loves, as it says in the text, to ask Jesus, ask Jesus, who is it? Who is the betrayer? Now remember our seating arrangements. Everyone is around the table, close to the food, leaning to the left, and John is so close to Jesus, pressed upon his chest, so close, close enough to ask Jesus, Jesus, who is it? Can you tell me who it is? Who is the betrayer? And we know he asked quietly because by the time all this is said and done, the disciples still don't know and they're still not sure it's Judas. They didn't know. Jesus, tell me who it is. Can you tell me? And Jesus has a curious response, don't you think? I don't don't know how you imagine this scene playing out, but for years I thought it was an odd response. Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. I always wondered about that response because I wonder why Jesus didn't point. It's Judas. Why didn't he just whisper it? Who did it? Who is it? Who's the betrayer? It's Judas. Why didn't he just do that? Why go through the the seemingly elaborate motions of dipping a morsel of bread into something and giving it to the betrayer? I I don't know how much time actually elapsed between the start of verse 26 and the end of verse 26. Did he say that to John and then immediately dip the morsel of bread and then give it to Judas? Or, Or did it take some time? Or did John already know before the morsel was even dipped that it was Judas? How would he know? You see, the action of dipping a morsel of bread and not just handing it to the person, but placing it inside their mouth wasn't something that Jesus just thought of in the moment. This was all part of the feast. This was an act that the host of the feast, which was Jesus, did for the honored guest of the feast. Can you think for a moment, how many people on this earth might you be comfortable with enough to place food in their mouth? Precious few, I would imagine. No, the disciples didn't walk around putting food in each other's mouths, but 
But then again, notice the action of the Savior who in the account just before this went through the paces of washing the disciples' feet. How many people on this earth might you be comfortable with enough to wash their dirty, nasty, calloused feet? Last week, Scott preached a sermon where the central theme was love your enemy. Love your enemy to what extent? Jesus shows us right here. He washed the feet of those who would soon use those very same feet to run away from him. And now Judas, the one whom would betray Jesus, love him to what extent? He's the honored guest. Jesus dipping the morsel of bread and giving to Judas the honored guest, which presumably means Judas was, was seated maybe immediately to his left of Jesus, as that's typically the seat reserved for the honored guest. And Jesus tells him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And we get another clue that all of this happened quietly, closely, subtly, because when Jesus said this to Judas, everyone else around the table thought Jesus was sending Judas out on an errand, not realizing he just revealed his betrayer. But do you see what Jesus did? How he loved Judas to the bitter end? He, he, he was treated no different than any of the disciples. He was never ostracized or singled out. Jesus loved him to the very end, treating him as a brother, treating him as an honored guest, despite the fact that he was just hours away from betraying him. So what does this tell us about our posture towards one another? To what extent do we love each other? To what extent do we love the doubter and the skeptic? To what extent do we love our neighbor? The actions of Christ tells us to the very end. The honored guest. Because why? In the end, what is it that separates Judas from people like Peter, James, and John, and all the other disciples? Did they have a little something more that Judas didn't have? Maybe they were just a little bit more devoted. Or, or maybe they had just a little bit more faith. Maybe they studied their Bibles a little bit more than Judas did, and that was enough to separate themselves, right? No. That's the miracle of, the, of all of this. Truth is, no, there's nothing that separates the other disciples from Judas. Nothing in and of themselves. In Luke's gospel, we read about a conversation that Jesus had with Peter soon after this meal, and, and Jesus gets real with Peter. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. R.C. Sproul describes this exchange in terms of expanding on the idea of a farmer sifting wheat, saying that sifting wheat might be a tedious task, but it's not a difficult task. In other words, Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you think you're all that? You think you're the guy? My kids like to say, you think you're him? I'm him. You think you're him, Peter? Satan was, was after you, and he could have brought you down, and he could have done it easily, Peter. You're just a play toy in Satan's hands, Peter. So what separates people like Peter from Judas? What was the difference maker in, in, in Peter? Jesus tells us in the next verse. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, in other words, when all this goes down and you run away like a scared little boy, you're going to come back. And when you come back, he continues, strengthen your brothers. The difference was Jesus. Jesus was the difference. It was the strength of the one who holds on to Peter, not the strength of Peter. Jesus was the difference. It's not Peter's ability that kept him near Jesus. When his feet were held to the fire, Peter had to put all his ability on the table, and what was revealed was that it was not enough. He didn't have it. He didn't have the ability. It was Jesus. 
I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not, that, that your faith may not fail. Do you know you're in the same spot? You're in the same spot as Peter. You have doubts because you two don't have enough, but there's one in heaven who prays for you right now. Right now he's praying for you. Right this moment he prays prayers of intercession for you. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, his strength, not yours, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He prays for you right now. Father, this one is mine. Keep them because of my righteousness, not theirs. Keep them. Okay. Okay, Lee Eric, but what if I'm not like Peter? What if I'm Judas? What if he doesn't pray for me like he does Peter? What if he tells me what you're going to do, do quickly? What if I'm one of those? The very fact that you have any concern over that thought is a gift from God. The very fact that you say that comes from a Savior seated next to God Almighty who prays for you. That one, with all their doubts, with all their questions, with all their uncertainty, Father, that one is mine. In John 6, 37, we hear Jesus say in no uncertain terms, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never, not ever. We, uh, we have a forum tonight, tonight at 4 o'clock. It's a forum on, on Christian deconstruction. What does that mean? If you want to attend, just show up. You don't, even though we asked for registration, we were just trying to get an idea of how many snacks to buy. So we've already got the snacks. Just show up tonight at 4 o'clock. What is Christian deconstruction? It means we're going to talk about doubt. Yes, the church of all places should be a safe place to talk about doubt, People who deconstruct their faith are people who have likely come up in the church, once believed themselves to be a Bible-believing Christian, but now, well, they're not so sure. They've been hurt, or they've been rejected, or finding some other inconsistency with what they once believed was true, and, and so they're tearing it apart. They're deconstructing their faith, hopefully to get at what is true. And the point of the forum tonight won't be for those who attend to get some points on how to own someone you're debating with who's expressing their doubts about how what's been sold to them is Christianity. Hopefully we'll get a chance to listen, to understand, and maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Because once again, the point of all, the point of all of it, the point of all this that we call church is not to bring a bunch of people to a place where they can say in unison, I have no doubts. I'm totally secure in what I believe. The point of all is to say, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. But there is someone who does. Jesus, the God-man, came to this earth, lived a perfectly righteous life, and fulfilled all that God required of man, and then transferred that record to you so that you can now say, I have enough, because he is enough. He gives you his righteousness. And not only did Jesus live a perfectly righteous life on your behalf, but he also gave his body and his blood as a payment for the sins that you committed. Paid in full. Nothing more to pay because he is enough. He gets you because he gave himself for you. Will you please pray with me? Father, please help us to learn the lessons of the Last Supper. Help us to discard the pictures we've made of you and may your word 
paint the picture in our minds that tells us of your son who condescended and made himself a servant to a bunch of broken doubters with, with weak faith. Help us to love as you have loved. Help us to, to love our enemies and pray for our enemies and not to hold up a righteousness that points back to ourselves, but help us to point to the only righteousness that truly counts, the righteousness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.